Uh, it is it is Millennial Sunday. If you if you're new here, you might be picking up already that over the last few weeks we've been having some fun, focusing on some of the different generations that make up the culture that we all get to live in together. And really, our heart is not just to have fun and remember the different things that were popular when different generations were younger, but to look a little bit deeper and look through a lens of faith and say, what is the wisdom contained and embodied in these generations that we can actually apply to our own journey of faith and better to connect with who God is and what He might be speaking into our life. So that's been our intention throughout the series. I've been having a whole bunch of fun with it. And, uh, and today, it's kind of a special morning for me because as we focus on the millennials, we're focused on my generation. Yeah, right? Hipster beanies and all. This is my generation, the generation that made men's cosmetics great again with our masculine moisturizers and beard oils and eye creams with just marketed to men who are just lapping that stuff up. But, you know, it, it's notable, and I feel like, unlike other generations, I'm poised to be able to make a little bit of fun about myself because this is my generation. And it might be said that millennials are somewhat easy targets to make fun of. In fact, I heard one definition of how we think about millennials is a word that older people use to describe a younger person that they do not like. <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe not fair, but humorous nonetheless. But you know what? To give you a bit of a, a picture and overview of the wonderful generation that is the millennials, I want to invite you to check out the screens once more for a wonderful recap of the generation that is the millennials. Ding, 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 ding.
pray for millennials. Now, can I just share some observations with you? Being able to see your responses to that particular story that was being told. Now, there were moments of honest laughter where fellow millennials were like, oh, yeah, that's me. That's me. And then there were moments where the other generations were really piling on. And when it came to the participation trophy, I heard a disproportionate amount of laughter in this place. But, hey, maybe it's true. You know, I love that. Just a bit of fun to to scratch the surface of the the millennials as a generation. But the reality is that there's incredible depth there as well. And that if you look for it, there's wisdom there as well. Wisdom that you can actually take hold of and think about how could that make a difference in my life? How can it shape how I view God? And how can it shape how I begin to live out my life of faith? You know, one of the things that's notable about the millennials is that in a lot of ways, we grew up with the internet. We started with the, the kids' God to getting the most of the internet. I never actually saw that video. Anyone see that video when you were growing up, Dean? No. You showed every day at school. Yeah, that was that. So, so we kind of grew up alongside the, the explosion of the age of information and more importantly, connectedness, that the world was becoming dramatically more connected as millennials were, were making the transitions from their, their children, their child years to their teenage years to young adults, that the world was now an incredibly connected place. And that because of that connection, relationship started to take on a whole new meaning. And the ability and the capacity that we each had to connect with others others of completely different backgrounds, of completely different beliefs and worldviews and values just explodes, that it became a connected generation. And one of the things that comes out alongside that and one of the values that, that we see in the millennials as a generation is this value on authentic relationship. And it's a generation that is relationally orientated. You know, millennials are more likely to to relate and resonate with a leader that is open, honest, vulnerable, and collaborative. A leader like Dean. These are the kind of people that millennials are drawn to, that what you see is what you get. There's a genuine story being told that you want to connect with, and there's this desire for the authentic in every expression of relationship. You know, a weird way that this was mirrored in the, me- in the media as millennials were growing up alongside this desire for the authentic was, of course, the birth of reality TV. Any fans of reality TV? Mm, some of you. <laughs> and let's be honest, it started in a pretty trashy place. And some would argue that it stayed in a pretty trashy place over the, over the years. But what it is, it's, just, it's almost this trashy reflection of what is at the heart of an incredibly positive value, the desire for the authentic, to see real people experiencing real conflicts, having a, a real experience of life. You know, it started probably in Australia, the earliest memories I have are shows like Big Brother, which was just pure trash. But then it got a little bit more wholesome with things like Australian Idol. Remember Australian Idol? Started in 2003. Look at, these, look at some of these characters. You remember those guys? Millennials, we grew up like texting for, um, what's his name? Guy Sebastian. He's worth, yeah, yeah. So, so Australian Idol. And, and the reason that that became so popular was this desire within culture to have authentic experiences and to know things that are real. And the millennials as a generation, they have this, they're just this bend towards relationship. Now, I love thinking about this as a starting point. You can take the, the idols down. The Australian, I'm sure that was preached at heresy at some point in a church somewhere. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, but but here's, here's what I love about this idea, authentic relationship. Now, let's, let's layer that for a moment on the way that we approach God, the way that we approach faith. What would it look like for each one of us to say, Jesus, I want to have an authentic relationship with you. I want to have an authentic relationship to God. I don't always want it to be an idea that's kind of out there or talked about, but I want to have a genuine and real authentic relationship with who Jesus is. You know, I think the starting point for that kind of a relationship with Christ is coming to understand or perhaps reminding ourselves that Jesus desires relationship with us. There's this wonderful story that's told in Scripture. One day, Jesus is teaching at the temple. And, uh, and as he's teaching, he's already now a, a somewhat famous teacher of the, the law in their culture. And, and people would gather, and maybe it was a crowd a little bit like this, maybe a little bigger, maybe a little smaller. And he might have been teaching from the, the prophets or, or Moses. And there comes to a point where he's interrupted by some of his opponents, some of the people that found the, the thoughts that Jesus brought as, as challenging, as difficult, and, and difficult to wrestle with. And, and they interrupted his moment of teaching by dragging a lady through the crowd towards Jesus. And they said, Jesus, this lady has been caught in adultery. And we've dragged her through the street. We've dragged her right up into this public moment. And I can't help but, but feel compassion for this lady. It'd be almost like for, for us today, if someone was able to capture on video the worst mistake that you've ever made, then post it to Facebook. And it's public. It's out there. Everyone can see this is the exact experience that this poor lady's having. A terrible choice that she's made sure, but now it's laid bare before everyone, before strangers. And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, our law says that this, this woman, she should, be, she should be punished and punished with death. She should be stoned. And what do you say, Jesus? And they, they're trying to create a situation that would trap him, that would cause him a challenge. And I love how Jesus chooses to engage with what's happened in front of him. The woman's sin brought before him, and he doesn't even acknowledge it. He stoops down, and with his finger, he begins writing in the dust, his head down, not even engaging with the woman's guilt at all. And you can imagine the, the stunned silence as this crowd of onlookers, onlookers watches this unfold, there might have been some of the, the, younger, the younger men towards the sides of the crowd, like, something's about to go down. How is Jesus going to react to this moment? What's going to happen? But Jesus stayed focused on the floor until his opponents, they, they continued to push him. They forced the issue. And Scripture tells the story in this way. What happens next? And we find, find this story in John chapter 8. And in verse 7, they keep on questioning him. And then Jesus straightens up. And it's almost as if he's assuming this position of authority. He straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, one thing I see when I see this story is that, that these opponents of Jesus, they bring this lady before him, and they're pointing towards all the reasons why she's different, all the reasons why she shouldn't be accepted, all the reasons why she doesn't belong, and ultimately all the reasons why she should be punished. She's not like us, Jesus. She deserves to be isolated, separated, punished. But then what Jesus does in this moment, he doesn't find the thing that is different about this lady and everyone else. 
he finds the thing that connects this lady and everybody else. He says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He's saying we're all the same in this moment, except himself who was without sin. He finds the link of commonality and not the link of difference. And then in verse 8, again, he says his peace, and he stoops back down and continues doing his thing. Now this, those that heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Imagine this scene. Jesus gives this truth. Let he who's blameless cast the first stone. And then he goes back to his thing. And then slowly, maybe it took five minutes, maybe it took half an hour. There may have even been men already that were holding stones in intense judgment and hatred. Then they started to drop the stones to the floor. One by one, they walked away. They looked around and noticed that the crowd was thinning and they continued to leave the scene until it's just Jesus and this woman. And then again, Jesus, that same word, he straightened up. He assumes that place of authority and he's about to bring significant truth once more. He asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She looks around perhaps for a moment. She says, no one, sir. No one. And then I can't help but imagine a fierce smile of compassion on the face of my Savior. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, I think as we hear this story together and we reflect on what's happening, there's, there's two threads that we can follow. One is how Jesus is able in this moment to find the link that unites them and not the link that separates them. And when I think about the millennials as a generation and the, the relational connectedness, and one of the things that we see in this generation for the first time is people be able to, being able to form strong, meaningful relationships across a range of groups that no longer are, are beliefs or behaviors, are values or values, barriers for friendship. But the world's becoming connected in a whole new way. And millennials, for the first time, had an incredible flexibility in who they were able to form relationships with, that the barriers of division were beginning to be broken away in our world. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this moment. And when I think about what, what wisdom there is in that, what would it look like for each one of us to see people for the inherent value that they carry and not for how they're different? You know, Jesus does something incredibly powerful in this story. He's accepting this woman. He's communicating to her that she belongs, that she has value, and that comes before her behavior. He says, you have value. You're accepted. You belong right here with me in this moment. And that happened before any change in behavior in her. You know, one of the things that we strive to be as a church here at True North is to always lead with belonging, shaped by who Jesus is. That behavior, that belief, never takes the primary place of connection before belonging as we view people together. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He looks for that place of connection and he assigns value to the individual. But then it also shows us something about how Jesus sees each one of us. That when I talk about having that personal, authentic, real relationship with Jesus, that means I can actually be real 
about all the things that are broken in me before my heavenly Father. And Jesus looks at me and has and sees inherent value in me that precedes any change in behavior. Jesus looks at my life and he, he knows and dreams of everything I might become. But he values me no more or no less based on my current behavior, based on my current belief, based on my current position in life. It's just I have inherent value. Yeah, I was really encouraged by a, a quote that, that Dean shared with me this week um, from the former Archbishop of Canterbury. I've forgotten his name again. Rowan Williams, thank you. Incredible guy. And, and as sometimes, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, but sometimes I think about the pursuit of God in my life. And sometimes I think that what I need is this strong commitment to who Jesus is. That I need this strong commitment to who God is in my life, that I need to value it. I've preached messages about exactly that. I've had conversations with people about it, that exact idea. And there's great truth in it. I'm not saying I was wrong in that conversation. But here's what I am going to say, that there is a more significant truth that must be preeminent before my commitment to God, is a, re- is a revelation, is a remembering of how committed Jesus is to me. Rowan's quote and Rowan's challenge was to say, every day, refresh and renew the truth that Jesus is committed to you. He's committed to you. And when you understand that, that opens the door to a relational, authentic connection with who Jesus is. You know, as, as I was reflecting on the, the millennials as a generation, one of the things that, that kept coming up in some of the, the readings that I was doing is, uh, is this really interesting part of what it means to be a millennial in, when it comes to engaging in the workforce. So most millennials now, they're, they're through their education and, and most are actually working somewhere or not or perhaps in a coffee shop dreaming about being a millionaire and not having a job perhaps. <laughs> But most are in the workforce. And there's something really interesting when you look at, the, at how the millennials comprise and make up the workforce, that of existing entrepreneurs in the workplace today, there are more millennials in that position of influence than any other generation. So it means more of, of all the people engaged with startups and, and entrepreneuring and, and starting new things, starting new businesses, there's more millennials than anyone else doing that. And of active entrepreneurs today, millennials are doing twice as much, twi- starting twice as many businesses as those over 50. So you have this picture in the workforce today that millennials are engaged with startups. Millennials are, uh, are leading in new spaces, doing, doing new and unique things to them. So how do we begin to discern that? Okay, why does that happen? You might, with perhaps a slightly negative idea, think, oh, the, the millennials, maybe they're, they're doing that because they, they don't like institution or traditional authority and they just want to do their own thing. And you could get stuck in that line of thinking if you wanted. But I think there's something deeper there. I think running alongside this desire for authentic relationship, there's a desire in millennials to live a life that's connected to cause. And millennials, even in their careers, are driven by cause. They respond to things where they can connect their story to a greater story, a greater cause, and a greater place of influence. Now, I learned this week uh, about uh, an incredible leader in our world today, a guy named Dr. Sam Prince, who's involved in a World Health Organization doing incredible things all over the world. 
Now, when he was in med school, this guy's a millennial, he's a couple of years younger than me, and I, I look at his life and I'm like, oh, geez, what have I done up <laughs> to this point? You ever had that experience? You're like, that guy's younger than me? Oh, shivers. <laughs> anyway, so when this guy's at med school, he decides and he develops the personal vision to launch a Mexican restaurant as you do when you're studying medicine, right? Anyone studied medicine before? Any, maybe not, but it's like they're pretty much the most intense thing you can study. So in my spare time, I'm just going to start this Mexican restaurant. That sounds fun. But here's, what, here's the heart that he had, and it was ingrained through his studies as well, that he believed that he could actually make a difference in the world. You know, maybe he was one of those millennials that grew up getting participation trophies, being told that he could do anything. And guess what? He took it seriously. He launches this Mexican restaurant, becomes really popular, and he launched it with this idea, with this vision, with this course. He said, for every plate of food I sell, I'm going to provide a plate of food for someone living in poverty. Every single time that happens, I'm going to provide a plate of food for someone living in poverty. I'm going to be a part of solving one of the world's biggest problems in hunger and poverty. Now, a little bit later, he changed the name of that restaurant to Zambrero's. Anyone had a burrito at Zambrero's? Maybe a nacho bowl. Maybe you alternate each trip you go to. That's, that's me, clearly. <laughs> that was like when we used to do a PM service. That was my go-to, straight through Zambrero's every single time. So he has this plate-for-plate plate vision. There's cause linked through what he was doing. And it's now the, the largest Mexican restaurant in all of Australia. Now, at this point, actually, this was on Friday. On Friday... They have this ticker on their website, and they've given over 31 million meals to people in poverty. Look at this. If you go on their webpage, you can see this clicking over all the time. That all their restaurants all over Australia, that they're able to provide a solution to one of the great problems in our world. And I love this, because it's some dude that was told you can do anything, and he said, I know. Here's what I'm going to do. And he's got it done. And now when I go get a burrito and sit in my car and eat it on the way home because I'm too hungry to wait to eat it with my wife. <laughs> I can say my story is connected to a bigger story that's changing the world. And I love it. <laughs> to be cause-driven. You know, the Scriptures, they tell another story about Jesus having a conversation with a young man. And he's a young guy, perhaps a little bit like Dr. Sam Prince, really high, capacity, really high capacity, intelligent guy, done a lot of things early in life, had a lot of successes. He was a person of influence in his community, had great wealth through the different things that he'd done as he'd made investments in himself and who he was becoming. And he was a Jewish guy. He shared the, the same faith and culture that Jesus had. And one day he has this opportunity to spend some time with Jesus. And he asks him a significant question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus begins by, by quoting Moses and some of the commandments. He says, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother. And the, the young guy, he looks at Jesus and he says, all those things I, I've done since, since a young age. I've grown up with those commandments. I followed those commandments. I lived my life honoring those commandments. And then the conversation continues in Scripture. Why don't you read it with me? And we'll, we'll pick it up here in verse 22. 
When Jesus heard his answer, he said, There is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And we'll hold it there in that first part of verse 22. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. He said, there's something missing. You followed my commandments. That, that's great. That's commendable. That's awesome. But there's something missing. And as I read this scripture, what I believe that the, the Jesus is pointing to and one of the, the threads that we can take from this is that Jesus is speaking to the place of cause in his life. There's something missing, a greater purpose to your life that's missing. And he talks about this idea of, of having treasure in heaven. You know, the, the word that, that's used there for, for treasure is about, it's really speaking to where we make our deposits. And so Jesus looks at the picture of his life and he said, up until this point, you've been making deposits into yourself. You become a, an influential young guy. You're, you're, a, you're a wealthy young guy. You've done, you know, you've invested in yourself in a really cool way. But there's something that's missing. And it's time to start making investments in a cause that's greater than yourself. Jesus is inviting him to consider what it would mean for his life to begin investing in Jesus' kingdom. Now listen to what happens next here as we continue in verse 22. Then Jesus says these incredibly significant and powerful words. Then come, follow me. You know, the reason that I'm drawn to this phrase in particular, because this is the phrase that Jesus uses to call the disciples. The 12 disciples that followed Jesus, that did everything with him, that experienced miracle after miracle. Jesus began with some fishermen. He said, drop your net. You've been making deposits. As a fisherman, I want to give you a new cause. Come and follow me. And Jesus uses the exact same phrasing to this rich young ruler. He says, come, follow me. You know, I look at, I look at this and I wonder, was this an invitation to the 13th disciple to follow Jesus? Was this an invitation for another individual to make a profound difference for the gospel in the world that he lived in, to see people's lives changed, set free by the hope in the name of Jesus. But it wasn't to be. Because the young guy in verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And this is the last we hear of the rich young ruler. We don't even know his name. But I wonder... What might have been different if he was able to take hold of Jesus' invitation to follow him and to begin making investments in God's kingdom? I invite the team to, to come and join me. You know, I believe that the words that we see here in Luke chapter 18, they're an invitation to each one of us here this morning. That when we know that Jesus is thoroughly committed to us, that Jesus is thoroughly committed to you, to who you're becoming, regardless of what's going on in your world right now, regardless of all the different things we can turn to and say, this is broken in me, this is wrong in me, this is, this is not good in me. You know Jesus' response to all my criticisms about who I am? He stoops down and draws on the floor. He doesn't care about them at all. He cares about who I am. He's here to redeem me in my weakness. And he says, Phil, come follow me. He says, Kel, come follow me. Daniel, come follow me. 
Tyler, come follow me. Make no mistake, preserved in Scripture, Jesus is inviting you to something this morning. To follow him. To begin truly living a cause that goes beyond yourself. You know, we laugh at millennials sometimes. They got their participation trophies. They think they can do anything. Sometimes they take that seriously and they do as we've seen. You know, you have a heavenly father. He believes you can do anything. Imagine if we started to believe that. The creator of the universe, your father, believes that you are capable of profoundly more than what you can currently imagine. He knows you. He's committed to you. And he invites you to dream a bigger dream for your life. To make a difference that goes beyond self. To connect your story to his story of renewal and redemption. What if we believe that our heavenly father said we could do anything? What if we believe scripture that said we can do all things through he who strengthens me? What if we just believed and were able to look at ourselves the same way Jesus does? He is completely committed to you. He sees with clarity the person that you can be. He sees a dream for my life that I can't even imagine. He sees a dream for your life you can't even imagine. Let's begin to take him seriously. Can I pray for you this morning? Can we stand together? And you can even take a moment, if it helps you connect with God, just to close your eyes. You don't have to bow your head. You can even lift your head up. You know, my prayer is today that you would be reminded of how committed Jesus is to you. That Jesus knows you in such a profound way. And he ignores completely (laughs) all the things that might separate us from him. And he declares that we belong. (laughs) We place our faith in him through grace. We're renewed. That we have the invitation to know friendship with God through Jesus. What an honor. But more than that today, we're invited to take on a cause that's greater than ourselves, to align our story with his story and begin to ask the question, Jesus, what might you be calling me to? God, help us to dream bigger dreams. Help us to have bigger visions for our life. And Jesus, help us to live out our lives with a desire to see your gospel, your peace, your joy flow out of everything we're doing. Lord, in different ways, show us what it means to change the world. Help us to believe that we can do it in you. Give us those dreams. Give us that cause. Show us how much more there is of you.
We praise you, God. And even as we worship together now, that as we declare these old school songs with even older truth coming straight from your scripture, Jesus, would you solidify in us the encouragement through your word this morning? We praise you, God. Amen. We're going to worship our great God together this morning. And can I share something real quick? And Dean touched on it as well. We were youth pastors in a similar era, which is a lot of fun. These songs, these were songs that, that my youth ministry used to sing when I was a youth pastor. And what I loved about these songs is that it helped young people to believe that Jesus saw them. And it helped young people to believe that Jesus believed that they could do incredible things with their life. And as we sing these songs together, I just invite you to take hold of that heart that believes and knows that God cares so deeply, intimately about you. And God has such incredible belief in who you are. So why don't we sing these incredible songs of worship, praise together. Let's do it with a heart full of joy and praise our great God.